You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have uh, Dana Carroll, PhD. Uh, he's a distinguished professor in the Department of Biochemistry at University of Utah School of Medicine and a member of the Nuclear Control of Cell Growth and Differentiation Program at the Huntsman Cancer Institute. So, uh, Dana, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, I had uh, seen some publications about some of your work. It was uh, dealing with... Um, Using various mechanisms to, um, I guess, to repair uh, genetic damage. Um, a term mentioned was zinc finger nucleases and uh, CRISPR and Cas9. So maybe you can uh, let listeners know what's your work about, and then we'll get into the details of, of how it works. Sure. The work that my group's been doing, and many other people around the world now, is working to be able to change individual genes in the DNA of essentially any organism. Um, and the tools have developed over the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, the zinc finger nucleases that you mentioned were the first of the tools that allowed us to get access to specific genes in the total genomic DNA of uh, individual organisms or cells. And... Uh, the current tool that people may have heard about is called CRISPR or CRISPR-Cas, and it has made things a lot easier. And by now, there are hundreds of different animals and plants that have had their DNA modified using mm. these, these particular tools. Um, a lot of what's been going on has been just for research to see uh, how particular genes work and you know, what what controls the development of individual organisms. But in the last few years, there have been more and more applications that uh, will have an impact on the public. So um, I have a question, you know, I, a gene, I've heard from some people that it's hard to define a gene. I mean, it's really more accurate maybe to say a series of, uh, of nucleotide bases. And, and the reason I've heard this is, that, I don't know, if you have a sequence of, let's say, uh, I don't know, a thousand nucleotides, I had thought that there was overlaps, you know, like if you label them one to a thousand, that's one quote unquote gene, but um, it can also be 
utilized as 500 to 1500, let's say. And part of that sequence is utilized and part of another sequence is utilized and that constitutes quote unquote another gene. Is that the case or am I wrong about that? It is fairly complicated. Um, uh, I don't know whether all of your listeners will be familiar with the fact that in humans and in many other uh, many other animals and plants, genes genes as we see them in the genome in the total DNA are made up of what we call exons and introns, and only the exons actually are coding sequences for proteins, and the introns are sequences that interrupt those coding sequences. We don't really know what their function is in most cases, but corresponding to what you said, sometimes from one particular gene, uh, different exons can be used, spliced together to uh, make a messenger RNA that encodes one protein or a different messenger RNA that encodes a different protein. So a single gene can be used to make uh, different but related proteins. So that's one complication. Also, um, the sequences of a gene that we will ultimately be used to make a protein have to be regulated somehow. The gene needs to know when to be on and when to be off. And so there are DNA sequences that regulate the expression of a gene. So are they part of the gene or not part of the gene? And sometimes they can be quite complicated and fairly far away from the gene in chromosomal DNA. And then there are some genes that we have a hard time really identifying because they look a little different from normal. So uh, defining a gene, just as you said, can be, uh, fairly complicated. I guess there's also the epigenetics methylation and histone deacetylation that uh, affects the how the gene is expressed as well. Absolutely, <laughs> that, that provides another complication. But you know, the more the more people study and learn about genes and their expression, uh, these things are beginning to come become clear. You know, we really didn't have much of an idea that many of the epigenetic controls 15 or 20 years ago. But now not only do we understand more of those, but we're able to actually manipulate them uh, the way we manipulate DNA sequences. Again, people are using the CRISPR technology to do some of this. I could see if you if you sequenced someone and you saw what was, you know, phenotypically normal, and then they were abnormal in a certain sequence and you use CRISPR-Cas9 to go cut that sequence out and put in the quote-unquote normal sequence, you know, there's probably little fear of, of issue. But how do you know if you're, um, if you're cutting out a sequence that it won't have all these side effects, these ancillary effects that you had no clue about if you're doing a knockout or something? Yeah, that, that's a concern. Um, we aren't so good right now at making corrections in the way you just said to remove uh, what looks like a, uh, a bad sequence and put in what we think is a correct one. We're not so good at that right now. So that's one of the areas of research where people are putting in a lot of effort to try to make it possible for us to efficiently make corrections of that sort. But even when we are able to make corrections, there are worries about not 
just doing the correction, but doing some things that would compromise uh, that person's uh, that person's genome. So that's something that that we're working on. And I have to say that the, the extent to which you care about what we call off-target effects really depends on what you're doing. So for some really devastating diseases where there may not be an alternative treatment, we might be willing to risk some off-target problems to get a good correction of the target that we're aiming at. So, you know, people are concerned about off-target effects, but the extent to which you are concerned depends on what you're doing and what you might be concerned about. So why are um, corrections so hard? Are you, is it because that corrections will unintentionally act systemically or is it because they're hard to get them to act anything but locally? Like what, what are some of the complications? When we use CRISPR or the zinc finger nucleases, what we enzyme does is it makes a break in DNA and we're able to direct exactly where that break will be. Once the break is made, everything that happens after that depends on DNA repair activities in the cell that's being targeted. And we don't have complete control over those repair activities. Some cells are pretty good at the correction style of repair, but many other cells aren't very good at it. That is, they, they have other ways to correct or to, to repair the break that may lead to... Uh, some mutations right at the break. Uh, we can make use of those in some circumstances. But to make the correction, we're, de- we're dependent on what people call homolog- homologous repair or homology-dependent repair. And as I said, there are a lot of cells out there in different organisms that just don't have that capability really cranked up to be efficient. So one of the areas of intensive research now is to look into what we what do we have to do to a cell so that it's doing the homology-dependent repair much more efficiently so that it will do the corrections. Well, what if, what if I have a condition where, like, uh, you know, my liver can't process something for some reason? Um, so you want to repair my liver cells mm-hmm. so that they can. If you do such a thing, will, we'll, you know, let's say you're injecting material that does CRISPR-Cas9. What, what will happen to the other cells in my body? Will it naturally go and cut their DNA sequences or kind of stop locally? And, uh, you know, what are the effects if, if so? That's a good question. Uh, it's another area where a good deal of research is, is being focused. A lot of what we're able to do now is, is much more easily done outside the body. And that's called ex vivo uh, mm. therapy. I'll give you one example, then we can come back to the delivery issue that you were just talking about. With one of the areas, one of the diseases that people are working hard to try to provide a, a therapy for is sickle cell disease. And this is a disease that affects red blood cells in the circulation. Uh, it's quite prevalent in many parts of the world and in areas where there aren't good uh, sort of um, symptomatic treatments. Uh, children who have this disease tend to die quite young. So the idea, which is just being acted upon, uh, not in the developing world, but in the developed world right now, people are taking cells from the bone marrow of sickle cell patients, 
doing a correction or another treatment that would uh, would reverse the defect in red blood cells, doing this in the laboratory and then putting the cells back into the patient from which they came. So it's a it's essentially an autologous bone marrow transplant. You get bone marrow cells from a patient. Uh, you you provide a uh, a therapeutic correction, you put them back into the same patient. And that's more easy to do than treating cells in the liver of a patient who has liver disease or in the bone marrow of a patient with sickle cell disease. We just don't, we don't have wonderful ways of getting efficiently into individual organs. So one worry is that the efficiency is not so good when we're doing this in vivo in a patient who has the disease. And another word is that we may be going to other organs, as you suggest. The liver is actually a pretty good target because lots of things go to the liver and not so efficiently to other organisms, organs. Um, there, there are ways to try to direct the therapy to a specific organ. Uh, one way is to try to do an injection uh, of the therapeutic materials that's being done in muscle and also in the eye. And so if you can do an injection into an individual organ, you worry less about the, uh, whatever the, uh, materials are going to other organs in the body. Well, even in ex vivo applications, you know, how many cells do you, let's say you're, you're treating the bone marrow or sickle cell anemia, <clears throat> you know, one cell I'm sure is not enough. But how many are needed? What percentage of cells? And, you know, can you do too many or too few? And, you know, what's been explored there? Well, we can get a lot of cells from bone marrow. Um, I want to say hundreds of millions, tens to hundreds of millions of cells. Uh, these are stem cells that we will go back into the bone marrow and reconstitute the ability to make both red and white blood cells. In the laboratory, in these ex vivo treatments, there are procedures now that are effective in making uh, therapeutic modifications in a pretty substantial proportion of those cells. Um, I would say for some of the modifications, it's around 25% of all those cells. For others, it's getting up to 50 or 75% of those cells. So that can be really effective. You put those cells back into the bone marrow. They have advantages over the cells that are still carrying the sickle cell mutation. And so the patient is likely to do very well. That, mm. So I don't know whether you, you might may have seen a 60 Minutes production several months ago uh, that was about a gene therapy for sickle cell disease. And they were doing exactly that sort of procedure, taking out bone marrow cells, treating them in the laboratory, and then putting them back into the patient. That particular procedure was being done with a gene therapy where this didn't involve CRISPR or zinc finger nucleases, but just the use of a virus that carried the normal gene for the beta globin protein. So putting the normal gene into these uh, stem cells that already had the sickle cell mutation is a way to uh, moderating the effect of the sickle cell mutation itself. And the, 
the very, very early trials with this gene therapy are looking pretty promising too. So this was a this was a 60 minutes production on CBS. And you and your listeners might want to go back and, and look at that and just see the kind of things that that are being done. So okay. that particular procedure is not a correction. It's a, a gene addition. But the gene corrections are going to be done with this, exactly the same sorts of procedures. So you can, you can do a, a minority population of bone marrow cells, alter them, and they'll slowly alter the rest of the cells. In the marrow, for instance, you can do at 20, 25%, or you have to go higher? Um, so if you're at 25%, 50%, that's enough to just overcome the effects of the sickle cells uh, that will still exist in the bone marrow. And that's partly uh, because the cells that have the correction are just healthier in the circulation. They last longer and and... Um, their presence in the circulation will sort of overcome the effects of the the cells that still carry the sickle mutation. It's also true that if 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 you go into the cells that carry the sickle mutation in both copies of the beta globin gene and you just correct one of them, that's a full correction. People who are naturally heterozygous, one sickle mutation, one wild type gene, uh, they're fine as far as their red blood cells are concerned. So a partial correction can still be extremely effective. Hmm. And uh, going back to the mechanism of action, so one mechanism is to cut the DNA at a certain point and then the cells naturally will fix it in the right way. Is that one mechanism? Well, we have to provide the piece of DNA that's going to provide a template for the fix. So... Hmm. It's it's one of the one of the other issues. One of the things that probably limits the efficiency is we're providing both the reagents that are doing the cut and also a piece of template DNA that is going to be the sort of band-aid that fixes the break and provides the correction. Okay, but you said doing um, the repair itself that's difficult. Like, why is that difficult? Why is it easier to just include the uh you know, snip and then include the fragment and just have it resonant there and then the body do it itself. Why is it hard to do the repair on our own? Yeah, um, the, the, a lot of cells want to do a different type of repair that doesn't include copying sequences off the template DNA that we provide. Mm. And what it, that, that other me- mechanism of repair is basically just jamming the ends back together. And sometimes that is inaccurate so it makes a mutation at the target site that's been cut and mm. that that doesn't provide a correction it, it, it's just it, it would be okay if at the same time you know if we if we mutated one gene by this uh this uh jamming back together mechanism but got a correction on the other copy of the gene the other allele um but um it's this competition with this other mechanism of repair that limits the efficiency. I see. I guess like that would be the probably analogous to the effects of radiation on your body. It would cause breaks in the DNA and then your body would, you know, jam stuff back together, as you said, as one mechanism. And maybe that would increase the incidence of mutations that you have in DNA damage. Right. And the good thing about using CRISPR is that 
the break is made at a single location. With radiation, you're just getting breaks all over the place. You have no way to control where in genomic DNA the damage right. is occurring. But with CRISPR, we you know we make a break at the target site that we're at, we're aiming at. There may be breaks at other sites in the genome. That's the concern we were talking about earlier. But um, there is this additional concern that at the site we're targeting, when we make a break, we don't always get the outcome we want. We sometimes get a mutation there rather than the correction. And at this point in many cells, mutagenesis at the target site can be more efficient than correction. So um, people have done a, a lot in improving the efficiency of correction. So it, when I was working on a sickle cell project four or five years ago, we were getting uh, correction at the rate of two or three percent in the cells that really would provide uh, would provide uh, a therapy. Now that correction is up at 25, 30. I've even heard people say 40 percent in the best oh. case. So we went from two percent, uh, which was would not have been therapeutic, up into a range that is therapeutic. And so the group that is continuing to work on that project is talking now about doing, you know, gearing up for the initial clinical trials. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so what are uh, zinc finger nucleases? I only heard about them. What do they do and how do they work versus CRISPR? They work very similarly to CRISPR. Um, the nuclease makes a break at a target site uh, and then uh, relies on cellular repair mechanisms to get mutagenesis or, or correction. Zinc figure nucleases were the first of the platforms that you could really direct to essentially arbitrarily chosen sites in, in the genome. Um, and they're still being used. There's a company in California called Sangamo Therapeutics. Their platform is, is the zinc finger nucleases. They're using them in therapies, both ex vivo and in vivo for particular uh, disease conditions. So the zinc finger nucleases are, are effective. They're just harder to use, harder to design for new targets. And so many people have switched to CRISPR because it's just a heck of a lot easier to, to manipulate and get it to make the, uh, the on-target breaks that you're interested in. And who discovered CRISPR? I, I heard it came from bacteria, use CRISPR. That is true. Uh, the people, so discovering CRISPR, the first clues that there was something out there that was kind of unusual in bacteria and ultimately led to the discoveries that we're making use of today, that that discovery of, of a piece of the CRISPR uh, stuff in bacteria, that was published in 1987 by a group in Japan, but they had no idea what it was all about. And it took, it took uh, more than two decades to get to the point where we really understood what CRISPR was doing in bacteria, how it operates, and how it could be uh, how it could be adapted for use in cells of essentially any organism, and the people who are rightly given credit for discovering the essential pieces of the CRISPR system are Emmanuel Charpentier, who's now in Germany but was in Sweden when the 
this work was done, and Jennifer Doudna, who's at the University of California in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And they published a paper in the summer of 2012 that showed how the system works and how you could adapt it uh, to, to be used as a genome editing reagent. Oh, and, wow. Okay. And they realized at the time that the work that had been done on zinc finger nucleases uh, many years before, and there was another uh, technology that uh, came between Z- the zinc finger nucleases and CRISPR that was called talons. But what was done with zinc finger nucleases and talons made it absolutely clear to people how you could use CRISPR. So as soon as they saw that these are the few things you need to get CRISPR to make a targeted double-strand break, it could be used just like the ZFNs and talons. And so immediately, essentially, a number of different groups showed that you could use CRISPR in uh, human cells, in mouse cells, in a bunch of other different organisms. Um, Hmm. And because of the the simplicity of the CRISPR system, how easy it is to use, uh, it just took off like gangbusters. Yeah. Well, I've read now they're able to uh, to start modifying RNA. I had just read this literally a couple of days ago. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of, one of the amazing things about CRISPR systems is that they're extremely widely distributed in bacteria and in archaeal organisms. And there's, there are people that are working on just discovering as many of these as possible. And as more and more are discovered, it's, it's being learned that they, although they, they are related systems, the way they function can be fairly different. Uh, and some are targeted at RNA, some are targeted at DNA. Some of them, when they target RNA and DNA, uh, just make a very specific break. Some of them are activated to essentially cause the death of the cells uh, where they're activated so that uh, a virus that has invaded the cells won't be passed on to other bacteria. Hmm. So it's really an amazing system. And as people learn more about how they work in their home organisms, they're being adapted to work in, in experimental organisms and in people. Oh. So what's your, what's your current research at this moment? What, what's it involved? Well, I closed my lab last year, so I'm not doing oh, okay. any laboratory research. Um, okay. uh, at the moment, I'm continuing to work on some of the outreach and engagement efforts, the ethical and legal aspects of uh, the genome editing technology, both in uh, uh, humans and in agricultural organisms. I'm quite interested in things that are being done in plants and animals as well as in humans. In general, do you feel like, um, you know, we're playing with fire, that uh, things aren't nearly well understood enough that, you know, we're not going to have a lot of side consequences or is that just an unnecessary part of the learning? I mean, what's, what's your overall thought about uh, genetically modified organisms and gene therapies? Well, uh, talking about gene therapy, I think we're slowly going at it. We, I use the we very broadly, you know, I'm not engaged in it myself right now. But I think people are going at uh, conditions that can be treated with pretty straightforward approaches. And they're going at it 
very slowly, very deliberately. Uh, so if there are going to be side effects that we don't anticipate, then we'll learn about it in, in the early stages of trying to develop these therapies. I'm optimistic about it. I think that we have enough control over the specificity of CRISPR and the zinc finger nucleases that um, we can pretty well anticipate the adverse effects. And if it turns out that there are some we hadn't anticipated, uh, there, will be, there will be ways to, to uh, get around those, avoid those. Um, so I'm pretty optimistic about the early therapeutic applications. There, for broader therapeutic applications, there are going to be huge limitations based on delivery. How do you deliver uh, the CRISPR reagents uh, to exactly the cells you want to make modifications in? And I think that's going to be a, a, real, a real area of intense research. And until we have solutions uh, to that challenge, it's still going to be sort of a niche therapy. In the agricultural applications, I think progress is going to be much more rapid and the impact is going to be greater in the short term. Um, there are already modified plants and animals that are, that are out there. There are a few plants that are making it to market right now. Um, there's a soy, soybean that has an oil that's healthier than the standard soybean. The modifications that have been made is are just to knock out some genes in the soy plant that are involved in the production of the oil. When those genes are, mo- are knocked out, the oil that's produced is more like olive oil in its uh, fat content. Um, and so it's, it's inherently healthier. Um, those uh, soy plants are being grown in the field uh, in the U.S. right now. There are mushrooms that have been modified so they don't turn brown when they're exposed to air. Uh, my understanding is that those are close to being in the market. Um, and there, there are uh, modifications like this that are being made in crop plants to, to just improve their characteristics. Um, the other things that people are working on are um, perhaps uh, uh, knocking out the uh, proteins in peanuts to which, to which pe- uh, people are quite allergic. If you could make peanuts non-allergenic, uh, that would be uh, an improvement. Um, people are working on uh, making crops resistant to uh, viruses uh, that uh, can wipe out the, these plants, particularly in the developing world. Uh, the developing world is where crops are much more insecure. Uh, a, an, inf- an infestation with insect pests, an infestation with viruses, uh, an extended drought can just wop, wipe out uh, food supply in mm. areas of the developing world. One of the areas that people are working on quite hard is to try to address those those susceptibilities in those crop plants and improve food security in those areas. And to the extent that that can be done, I think it's going to have a huge impact. 
Yeah, I wonder if you could uh, deliberately engineer in diversity to, let's say, you know, rice in a given country. Um, so you'd make very similar, you know, types of rice plants, but they are different. And maybe that would help blunt the effects of, uh, you know, bugs and parasites and all kinds of stuff that would destroy the crop just because the, the population is, you know, more diverse than just one single type of rice plant, for instance. Is there any thoughts of doing something like that? Yes. And uh, one of the nice things about the genome editing technology is that you can make a modification that that will improve the, caris- the traits of the plant. You can make that in any cultivar. You don't have to do it in one standard type of rice, for example, and then try to distribute that rice all over the world. You can make a modification that might make uh, the rice pest resistant in a rice that's already adapted to uh, a particular environment. You can make that modification there. You can make uh, that same modification in rice that's adapted to a different environment. So you can retain the diversity of rice crops that are adapted to different environments without having to introgress just one standard variety. Um, and so it, it's a way to it's a way to increase diversity uh, rather than to to move toward monoculture, which is a uh, something that people in agriculture are quite worried about. And what kind of um, creature would you say is the best gene editor on the planet? Is it viruses? Is it uh, bacteria? Any, you know, for gene editing, again, we're using you know CRISPR, so it's bacteria-based. Viruses seem to be really good at it. Um, I mean, how would we deliver the uh, the genome mm-hmm. editing? Is that what you're asking about? Yeah, I guess you know, are there any other technologies similar to CRISPR? And viral vectors that uh, you see out there that you know show promise but just aren't there yet. Some characteristics of viruses are being are being used in delivery of the the CRISPR reagents. So there are viruses that efficiently get into cells and then stay there for a long time, and that's in some cases what you want when you're when you're delivering the CRISPR reagents, you want them to stay there for quite a while. That's particularly true of the, uh, the version of CRISPR where you're modifying RNA. When you modify DNA, once you've done it, that's it. Um, those modifications will stay there as those cells divide and uh, are maintained over long periods of time. But with RNA, there's new RNA being made all the time. RNA is being degraded and, and synthesized. And so you, if you're going to rely on modifying RNA, the ability to modify has to be there continuously. So uh, people are using viruses that get into cells and stay there that will continue to produce the CRISPR reagents over long periods of time. Viruses, as far as I know, viruses don't carry, natural viruses don't carry, don't carry proteins that are good at targeted modification of cells. And so that's what we've borrowed from bacteria or we've borrowed from from capabilities of mammalian cells themselves uh, to do these genome editing modifications. And we're using viruses 
to deliver those reagents, deliver the CRISPR reagents, deliver the zinc finger nucleases, because viruses know how to get into cells. Yeah, well, I read a little bit about endogenous retroviruses. Like it's, a, it's amazing that viruses can uh, integrate their own DNA into our DNA, and that could last for generations or forever. So I, I guess they uh, they hold promise to really cause uh, significant alterations if they can be harnessed. Yeah, the the thing about um, viruses that integrate into cells, including the retroviruses that uh, still uh, integrate in into our cells, you know, these endogenous retroviruses are occasionally activated to make new copies of themselves. The problem with viruses that integrate into our genomes is they do, they don't go where we want them, and we can't control where they go. Right. So, so they can they can make good vectors for some purposes, but uh, what we'd rather do is what. CRISPR does, which is to put things into the precise location where we want them. Yeah, well, maybe we can harness them in some way where they can specifically do our bidding. So that's why I was just postulating maybe it's possible in the future. People are, people are working on that. Um, and uh, if, if, we had a, uh, if we had a whiteboard that both you and I could look at, I could draw you some pictures. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Uh, viruses are being used in a lot of ways to support the CRISPR technology, but the key feature of CRISPR, this ability to target a unique location in a huge genome, uh, is something that viruses don't do well on their own, but they can be an adjunct to help uh, CRISPR. Mm. Okay. Well, very good. Um, any uh, last topics or questions that uh, you want to cover that we haven't covered? I know time's running out. So, yeah. Um, so, I, I think CRISPR and the related technologies have a huge amount of promise uh, for medicine, for agriculture, being used extremely widely in research. In the practical applications, I think one thing people need to keep in mind is that it's going to take some time for the benefits of the applications. Uh, to really to really be manifested, it's not going to be tomorrow where you can uh, check into the clinic and expect expect to get a CRISPR therapy. There's a lot of work to be done to just to make sure the the therapies are safe and effective. And the way new therapies are tested uh, in the U.S. and most places around the world is to just Go slowly, test a few patients at a time, make sure things are safe in the first instance, then go to a, a small number more patients and make sure there's some efficacy, sort of test out doses. And so it's going to take years for the clinical applications to really be available to people in the in the clinic. And so people shouldn't get shouldn't get too uh too optimistic about when these things are, are going to be available. And if it turns out that there are some adverse effects that we haven't anticipated, that'll slow things down even more. Mm. So just be patient. Okay. Well, very good, Dana. Well, I, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, you know, it's been a good interview. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Richard. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. And I hope your listeners 
uh, find it interesting. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Thank you.